I'm Dr. Robin Roth. And I'm Dr. Adrian Rosenthal. And together, we are the Booby Docs, our Instagram account where we talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and approachable way. We are both fellowship trained breast radiologists who have been best friends since day one of med school. We work together, we mom together, and now we podcast together. Welcome to the Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, then this podcast is for you. Each episode will sit down with some of the top breast cancer experts and inspiring thrivers to help you navigate through a cancer diagnosis while having some fun along the way. So without further ado, let's be breasties. Nailed it. (laughs) This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please contact your doctor with any symptoms or concerns that you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. So welcome to the podcast. Just, I have a doctor's appointment. I thought we were your doctor's appointment. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think you can help me with my plantar fasciitis, so. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'd be all over it if it was the other problem, but thankfully I don't have that right now. <laughs> don't wear heels. That's my advice to you. Don't wear heels. The crazy thing is I haven't worn heels in five years, so. I'm right there with you. I don't know how this happened. So I wanted to give you a proper introduction. So we are here with. U.S. Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was first elected to Congress in 2004 and currently serves as the U.S. Representative from Florida's 23rd Congressional District, which is much of Broward and North Miami-Dade. She's also a former chair of the Democratic National Committee and has the distinct honor of being Florida's first Jewish congressman. Found breast cancer at the age of 41 and was found to be BRCA2 positive um, and is a leading congressional champion of cancer advocacy, of the cancer advocacy community and also the Jewish community. So it is truly an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, and thank you. Um, you guys really have made <clears throat> talking about breast cancer and all of the moving parts, so to speak, um, that are related to it. It, so it, you communicate in such an accessible way and and in a very tense situation you know anything that can sort of dial us down while we're going thank through you. that is is really important thank you so much for saying that it's truly an honor you know i grew up in south florida my parents oh. actually still live in howard oh. um, district i know so okay even i'm a gator and <laughs> Oh my God, I didn't know either of those things. <laughs> yes, so, fun fact. And I grew up actually on the same block as Barbara Effman. Oh, you're which, kidding me. No, oh which God. we could play geography. <laughs> yes, yes. We, Jewish geography really is pretty simple when you're in South Florida. <laughs> I know, but, no, but we're both in South Jersey now, oh, so yeah. it's amazing. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, I, I left Florida in 2004 and I've been up north since, but like I've really admired your career and it's really just so refreshing to have a strong, powerful Jewish woman in power who's really open about your Jewish identity and breast cancer journey, especially in these times. Thank you. I, I appreciate yeah. that. It's really, it's, I, that openness was the key thing that I knew that I would make sure that I did once I went yeah. through yeah. my whole my whole experience because so important. so isolating. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into politics and then we'll get into the breast cancer. Sure. I, I mean, I'll sort of try to keep that part brief, but you know, yeah. going back to um, when I was growing up, I grew up on Long Island and uh, 
wanted to be a veterinarian my whole life. I've always been a really focused person. And so I kind of did everything in my life directed towards that goal. Volunteered in an animal hospital for four years in high school and was dual enrolled in the local agricultural and technical college and animal science classes. And then when I got to the University of Florida, go Gators, um, (laughs) I, uh, I was an animal science major and chemistry and I did not get along very well. So, uh, so I, I sort of knew that if, unless I was only going to study to prepare to try to get into veterinary school at some point, that I was going to need to change direction. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, at the same time, I got involved in student government. And, yeah. and, you know, that's a pretty real thing at the University of Florida, very intense, as you probably know. And so it was really like I get hit by, by a lightning bolt. The whole notion of Tikkun alum mm-hmm. that I was raised, you know, repairing the world, the Jewish value of Tikkun alum, which, you know, we were a secular family, but still around our t- dinner table, we were raised that, you know, we were fortunate. So it was imperative that we give back, that it was our responsibility to help make other people's lives better. And so I decided when I realized that I could change my major to political science and I started getting involved in real world politics that I could make Tikkun alum a career choice. And that's, you know, I only half jokingly say that. That's what I did. I just was so committed, you know, just normally, no matter what I had planned to do, to doing that, that I just decided to make that my job. Love that. Tikkun alum means um, improving the world for those who are not familiar. So were you on Blue Key, I guess? No, no. I tossed Blue Key out of student government. No, I was... (laughs) I was the I was in the independent part, so I was not Greek. Uh, it, it was uh, that th- they took over student government every election, and we wanted to g- our our party wanted to give other other students a chance. They were all bo- boxed out unless they were in a fraternity or sorority. So we were the um, the student empowerment party, and and we we beat the machine. Oh, I would have totally voted for you. So no, unfortunately not in in Blue Key because. Um, I wasn't going to let that group, group of individuals judge my leadership qualities. <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> Trailblazer. My da- youngest daughter is in Florida, and she is a uh, in a sorority and in the student senate, and you know is headed in that that blue key direction. Um, my whole I just on the side note, my whole family went to UF, and we are all gated. My husband went to UF too, but we all live in Jersey. But. Oh yeah, three three generations. My dad, my <laughs> husband, my brother, and I, and all three of my kids. I love it. <laughs> we bleed orange and blue in our house. So I'm one of you too. <laughs> Don't mind us, folks. You know we're we're going off track a little bit here. <laughs> Adrian looks like she wants to ask you something about breast cancer, so I might oh, let her. I, I do, I do. So, at what point in your career were you diagnosed with breast cancer, and how did it kind of shift your paradigm, your career plans? So it didn't change my career plans at all. Um, I had been in the legislature for 12 years. I was elected to Congress. So from 1992 to 2004, I was in the state legislature and eight years in the House and four years in the state Senate here. I was actually the youngest woman ever elected at the time to the legislature when I was 26 years old. Um, So I I was term limited uh, from the House. And then I, in 2004, had a chance to run for my predecessor's um, seat in Congress, and so I ran, but then and was elected. But then two years later, um, I mean, excuse me, three years later, I was 41 years old. I was um, I, I was familiar enough that I knew that I needed to pay attention to my breast health. I, I knew I needed to do self-exam at least on a regular enough basis so that I knew 
you know, kind of what was normal for me so that I would know mm -hmm. when something felt different. And one day I was doing a self-exam in the shower right after my first mammogram, which came back normal and, you know, mm -hmm. not, no, what did they say? No evidence of, of cancer or whatever. They yeah, used no mammographic evidence of cancer. Right. right. So then it, then it, um, but it said I had some calcifications. So it, they were going to want me to come back. Mm -hmm. I don't remember how long and how long, but that kind of raised my antenna, even though it said no evidence of cancer. And so I, like a couple months later, I did a self-exam and I found something that felt like, it felt like the end. You know, remember when you played jacks when you were a little girl? Um, you know how it, that little ball on the end of each nub mm -hmm. of the jack feels? That's what it felt like. And it was really small and I mean, I sort of can't, but it was, it was actually less than half a centimeter. Um, so I, it's amazing that I actually could feel it and I kept being able to feel it. And then I had my husband feel it. And so you know, I wasn't crazy. And uh, so I knew not to play around. And I, you know, three days later I was at the doctor and uh, <clears throat> um, there were all kinds of, of um, advice. And I, I don't know if we'll, we'll get into that, but, mm -hmm. but it didn't change my career plans. I was very determined to, you know, just, I mean, just put my head down, do what they told me to do and, uh, and, and keep going. So mm -hmm. I was diagnosed in December of 2007 on, uh, on, on D-Day actually, oh, December wow. 7th. Yeah. And, uh, and 2008 was, um, you know, Obama's first election year. And I was very involved in the presidential election first for Hillary and then for Obama. So I just, uh, I had a lot to distract me. It was awesome. Oh, wow. <laughs> What a time, I'm sure. Yeah. Crazy time. And then, I mean, I think you, I, I, some, some know, I, after I was diagnosed, um, I, and I had been very involved in the fight against breast cancer as a legislator. So, you know, I thought I knew a lot about breast cancer. I, um, I passed the drive-through mastectomy bill in, in the Florida Senate, which, you know, insurance companies were forcing women out of the hospital it, in two days after mm -hmm. a double mastectomy and hooked up to drains and everything. And, and like, you know, way before, like before they were ready right. and before, like when they're doctor, like people like you who would not want to discharge them, but the insurance wouldn't pay past 24 hours. So we prohibited that like many States did with, with legislation that I passed. So, I mean, I, it's not like I was oblivious, but when, when I sat down with the nurse educator, to kind of go through my family history and to do that whole part, tr that family tree. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew I had a lot of cancer in my family. It was mostly lung cancer, but I had two great aunts who mm -hmm. had breast cancer in their forties wow. and my grandmother didn't, but her sisters did. And so by the end of that conversation and the, the way my tree looked, even though it wasn't mostly breast cancer, she recommended I have a genetic test because I was mm -hmm. an astronaut. And then she explained, and this is what blew me away. Never mind that I have cancer on top of that. She's like, she said, you know, you're an Ashkenazi Jewish woman and you're five times more likely um, as an Ashkenazi to, uh, to, to have a, a BRCA1 or BRCA2 genetic mutation. So I, I, I couldn't, didn't know that. And mm -hmm. I got the genetic test and I was, so <laughs> it's funny. It was, that, that whole process was a little lengthy. Um, I walked into the doctor, to, to my doctor's office, opened up the door and saw there were a lot of people in the room. And I said, I don't have to open this folder. There are too many people here for the for the results to be negative. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So actually, it's ten times more common in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. So we oh, really 
Oh, yeah. So okay. we really even try, we really try to promote genetic testing uh, like yeah. on our platform a lot. Um, and, you know, since you're, since you found out you're a BRCA, how did it, did it change your treatment at all? Like, did you then go on to have oh, your yes. ovaries out? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Because, because I caught it so early. I was stage 1A mm-hmm. and I had no lymph node involvement and all I was going to need. So before I knew that I was positive, Right. The recommendation was a lumpectomy and radiation. Right. And then once I had the, the mutation, the BRCA2 mutation, I mean, that could have still been the choice I made. But basically, they told me your other alternative is to get an MRI every six months, pretty much for the rest of your life. And, you know, so that you would be able to catch, I'd be able to catch any your return early. And, uh, <laughs> That felt like a ticking time bomb, and it also felt like I was going to walk on eggshells the rest of my life. So, the the the, the pathway I chose was a double mastectomy. I mean, thank thankfully I was, you know, I mean I was married at that point. I had had all we had had all the children we planned to have. I was able to, you know, thank God, nurse all three of my kids, and so they served me well. But I had to say, I had to say goodbye to them um, because uh, you know it was just too risky to. To, to hold on. So I had a double mastectomy. And you also underwent the oophorectomy at that time? Yeah, I had seven surgeries over the course of 15 months, you know, all the way through the process. And one of those was an oophorectomy to remove my ovaries. Because the, of course, other, the bonus, uh, you know, the bonus item with, uh, with BRCA2 is that, you know, you're, you have something like between a 40 and 85% chance of getting ovarian cancer before you're 50. So you're going to correct me and say it's even worse, I'm sure. But no, that's, about, that's, a, that's about right. But I was just going to say you brought up a good point that you were done with your childbearing years. You know, you're 41, you had children. But for someone who's 25 and finds out that they have a genetic mutation, it's really devastating because they have to, you know, go through the fertility preservation. I have two daughters. Yeah. And, and I, you know, <coughs> and I only found out when I had breast cancer already. Right. So you know, what we've been talking about for the years since, <coughs> excuse me, what we've been talking about in the years since is, you know, that there's so many, there's so many different stages of life that young women are when they, when mm-hmm. they, if they find out and when, you know, not right now I've been going through conversations for years now with my daughters about when would they get tested. And I'm mm-hmm. trying desperately to hold them off from getting tested too soon because I feel like there's only so much long that you want to carry that information with you. I know I didn't want to be a tick, feel like a ticking time bomb. And, mm-hmm. you know, A, they may not get ever get breast cancer. My mother had the gene. She never got breast cancer. She had lung cancer, but she never got breast cancer. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so one is 18, the other is 23. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm pushing my oldest daughter to wait till she's in her late 20s before she yeah. gets tested. And uh, and my youngest, you know, will, will will hopefully be the same. And and they're listening, but you know, yeah. then they'll have some decisions to make. Yeah, I'm gonna jump in and then say if you if you are if you have a first degree family member that is BRCA positive and you could potentially be BRCA positive, then they do start screening earlier, like with breast MRI. I believe it's starting at age 30, so that yeah. she might benefit from that. Right, and so she's 23 right. now, so we're about to be 23. So we got we got a while before that. Yeah. So since it's not even indicated for her to start monitoring yet. I just don't, I mean, that's terrible news. Uh, I mean, and especially, you know, and and then, then they have to make a decision about prophylactic mastectomy. And, you know, I, I, 
the gift of being able to nurse your children and feed your children, I, I mean, I don't want them to be deprived of that. It'll be their decision, but mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, Oh, it's just really, it's just really devastating. It, it, it really is. So, so, you know, fingers crossed, it's possible they don't, they don't carry it, but, and then my son, yeah. I have a son too. He's one of the twins and, uh, obviously the risk is far less from, for him, but he, because he will one day have children, um, you know, he will have to know. And my brother also has a daughter and a son now, and, and he's going right. to have to know whether he's a carrier, you know, for, right. his, for his, for his kids. So. And it does increase male cancers as well. Actually, males that are BRCA carriers are at increased risk for breast cancer as well as prostate cancer, um, pancreatic cancer, and melanoma. So it is important for them to know as well. And like you said, uh, passing on to their offspring. No, Not to be a Debbie Downer, but no, sorry. no, I know it right. I'm, I know all the. I know yeah. we're, we're talking about this out loud because we, we want yeah. to educate people. And no, I know. And yeah. So I just um. It's a I, lot. I, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. I mean, so it's like just it was just such a one-two punch. I mean, mm-hmm. first you know you get slammed with the news that you have breast cancer, and then your risk of re- uh, of recurrence is so high, um, and then on top of that, you know the risks of other cancers. I mean, so I I screen for dermatology and and all kinds of others. But but the important thing, and I I think I don't know if we're gonna get into it, but but one of the key things that I wanted to do when I was fin and I I kept my I, I didn't share publicly what I was going to, mm-hmm. but when I got to the end of it, I knew that I would share it publicly mm-hmm. so that I could use my platform and my profile to really make sure we could make a difference. Yeah. I was going to ask, while you were a member of the house, you underwent the seven breast cancer surgeries and right. choose to, chose to keep it private at the time. Mm-hmm. What was, why did you make that decision and what change, if anything, after you made that public? So there were professional and personal reasons that I cho- chose to keep it <clears throat> to keep it private. Um, the the personal reason was that my kids were really little. My youngest was four, the twins were nine, and cancer is a really scary thing for a child. Mm-hmm. And I I felt like the only understanding they had of cancer was that people die from it. Mm-hmm. And I was already you know I go back and forth to Washington at that point every week, and so I'm away a lot to begin with. And I just didn't want them to have, if they had that information in their head, you know, like, and worried about whether mommy was going to come home because yeah. I died, you know, I mean, I just, and I was having my, my surgeries in, in, and everything in DC because it was, it kept me closer to my being able to do my job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I still flew back and forth, but so that was protecting them was really important. And then, you know, it's, it's so isolating to begin with and, and also so defining so, I mean, people really don't know what to say to you when you have cancer. Mm-hmm. And, and professionally, I knew that if I talked about it publicly, that I would in every article, no matter what I was saying, I would be Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's currently battling breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be more than breast cancer. And, I, and with, I wanted to control. You lose control over everything while you're dealing with breast cancer or any cancer. So whatever you can control, you mm-hmm. want to hold on to, and so that's how I that's how I felt about it. And so I wanted to control when I told when and if I told people and how I did, and then you know how yeah. we how we managed that that whole situation. It was yeah. what was right for me. Yeah. Did after you made made it public, did a lot change for you? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, when I made it public, first of all, I mean we we. We were so good at keeping it quiet that, I mean, really people, except for my tight little circle, 
people were really blown away. Um, and and I, I shared it, though, in conjunction with announcing that I was introducing legislation um, that yeah. was both designed to help young women deal with the unique challenges that, that we face and also educate women at higher risk, either her, through heredity or their, um, you know, like black women, for example, are less likely to get breast cancer and more likely to die from it because of the triple negative, the, the like, higher likelihood of being um, getting triple negative breast cancer. So the way my life changed is that I was okay being so associated with breast cancer when I chose to be. You know, when I when I was through it and healthy and I knew that I could do associate myself with it in a positive way. So ever since then, um, you know, it's it's for me, it's like I just take every opportunity to talk about it, to to make a difference, to to move the move the needle um, in any way we can. Um, Because I just always hearken back to if I didn't know that I was at higher risk then how many women don't know? And then oh, yeah. how many oh, yeah. women do we know? I mean, look how busy you all are, I am. So many, every woman I know thinks of themselves last when it comes to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I'll tell you, um, it changed me physically. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. having a that, that, that double mastectomy is a, is a physically devastating thing to have to do. Um, and I have the most supportive, amazing husband on planet earth. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, it, when I tell you he, he didn't care at all. And, you know, the only thing that mattered was my health. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still, you guys, you know, you're still looking at the mirror at yourself and yeah. every day. And I mean, it sucks, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, it, does, it just does. Yeah. I mean, we're 40 and I, it's a, like, you feel like you're coming into your own finally. And then you have this life changing yeah. body altering diagnosis. Right. right. And so then yeah. I went in, and I also, because I had a new hysterectomy, I went into menopause and right. immediately and, so, I mean, I didn't have menopause that bad, but it, it, it was just, I, you know, I'm, I, <laughs> I miss the girls, you know, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and it was, um, you know, you, you look at yourself, you look at yourself in the mirror and I always have this, those scars and, mm-hmm. you know, I have to think about, okay, is, is, did they get all the tissue? You I mean, no matter how confident that I am, and I'm very confident that we did everything we could yeah. to prevent a recurrence. Um, including with the follow-up medication and everything, but you know, you always have that tickle in the back of your mind. You just oh, totally it's anxiety every time you have to go to a doctor's appointment and oh, everything. God. Right, right. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to talk about some of the things you did for the cancer community because you are a leading advocate. But so just last year, you introduced bipartisan legislation to expand access to life-saving genetic testing. Um, Use to determine the risk of developing cancer called the Reducing Hereditary Cancer Act. So tell us more about that and why that was important. This is crazy. So Medicare, and I learned this because my mom got denied, but this mm-hmm. isn't, it brought, the bill was brought to me separately, but my mom, was who was Medicare age, knowing that her daughter had breast cancer and was BRCA2 positive, Mm-hmm. could not get Medicare to cover the genetic test to see if she was the one that was BRCA positive because she didn't already have cancer. Oh, my God. Medicare requires you to have cancer in order to cover the genetic test. Now, in your experience, yeah. is a genetic test more expensive or cancer treatment more expensive? Definitely cancer for a patient. Right. 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 So it's ludicrous fiscally and then morally. It's mm-hmm. So 
the test is very expensive without coverage. Yeah. And I mean, it was even more expensive. Year when I was diagnosed, it was oh, yeah. three thousand dollars. If you you know, unless, unless it was covered, there was also one company. We don't have to talk about it anymore. But there was yeah. only yeah. one company that was the test was patented. But now there's lots of options. And I, I mean, if you're Medicare age, you can't get it covered. So the Reducing Hereditary uh, Cancer Act would require Medicare to cover the test <laughs> if you have a close family relative that has the that has the, a mutation and it also requires that, that prophylactic if chosen prophylactic treatment be like a mastectomy or or something like that would be um would be covered as well by Medicare so okay. i mean it seems very basic and i mean any of that is less expensive than waiting to someone and less deadly <laughs> um, yeah. than than cancer so and less morbidity right like so if you can <laughs> Yeah, just so many things. It is, it is ridiculous, but there's yeah. a cost to it, so that makes passing the legislation somewhat of a struggle. Right. Um, and then another thing you worked on, um, about 15 months into treatment, you introduced the Early Act, where the Education and Awareness Requires Learning Young Act, which I love, um, to help <laughs> educate young women about the warning signs of breast cancer. Yes. How did we you do that? Acronyms. We like acronyms in Congress, and that. so... The one, the one thing I wanted to make sure I did when I shared my story was what void can I fill? So, you know, I didn't want to just say, well, I just went through breast cancer and so I'm for more funding. I was already on the appropriations committee. I fought for funding every year. Um, what else could I be doing that isn't being done now? And I met with a coalition of about 40 different groups and, and you know, that I, that I spoke to over the course of the time that we were preparing to do this. So many of them told me that really young women were a population that was only about 10% of the breast cancers, but the, the, were one of the groups that where the mortality rate, even though all the other groups had mortality rate had decre decreased, younger women, you know, were still dying at higher rates. And yes. so making an impact so that you could make young women aware of their breath, the importance of paying attention to their breast health, make sure that the unique challenges that we face, that, that they were educated about that and how they could deal with those. So what we did was we, the Early Act created a national education and awareness campaign targeted at young women, and that was funded <clears throat> at the CDC, and it's still, it's still going today. It's called Bring Your Brave, and it's been a really effective program. They've been able to show how, you know, how many young women they've educated. It also, though, what came up in my conversations with so many groups was that healthcare providers are often dismissive of younger women when they come in and present with a problem. I can tell you countless women I've talked to who have yes. been dismissed by their physician. And so we have a, a CME program, uh, you know, and an education program for healthcare providers so that they know that breast cancer presents differently in younger women very often, that yes, young women can and do get breast cancer, that here are the things like fertility that you should talk with that not all doctors do when a young woman, woman has breast cancer that you should talk about. So that was another piece of it. And then another critical piece was grant program, grant funding for organizations that help young women deal with those challenges. Like, you know, you should talk about fertility with your doctor because if you haven't had children and you want to when you're gonna go through chemo, it could compromise your fertility. And so, you know, perhaps you should harvest your eggs before you, uh, you know, or, you know, have embryos created if you have a partner or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah. But then there's even dating. Right. There's, yeah. even, there's even dating, you know, like 
when do you tell, what, what date do you tell a guy that you've had a double mastectomy, you know, and yeah. that you've been through breast cancer and lots of other challenges like that. Yeah. I love that because, you know, we, we, we read, you know, we interpret the mammograms and we um, see patients when they come in with a lump complaint. And we have so many times, like they'll tell us, oh, my doctor told me it was a clogged duct. My doctor told me it was this, like right. basically that they're, 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 uh, warning signs get dismissed. And I know it's so hard because it's not common, but it can't be ignored, right? These these complaints mm -hmm. in women, young women cannot be ignored. It, right. I'll tell you, I, I wasn't, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I'm so glad you can hear me. I don't think the audio was working the first 20 minutes. Oh, no. I was wondering why you, you <laughs> she's a little flat in the corner. <laughs> This is, I'm talking to two Jewish women. How are both of them not talking to me? <laughs> I thought you were so intrigued by our conversation. You just let us know. But <laughs> I logged out and I'm back in. Um, okay. Well, it, it just emphasizes the importance of being your own advocate in all situations. And it's, it's much yeah. easier to realize that, right, as like a 40-year-old woman than as a 20-year-old woman. Because it, it, it can feel like... Oh. A patriarchal, patriarchal system and women are often dismissed, especially in their 20s, because statistically, odds are it is a clock duct or a fiber adenoma or a cyst. But, you know, they're like you said, like what's under the hood? There's so many people who do carry a genetic mutation that they're not aware of that often get diagnosed with a lump. And that's when kind of things unfold. So we've become such huge advocates of getting women comfortable with the self-breast exam and just pursuing, you know, the right, the right treatment. By the way, you guys, you would not believe that I had to fight some breast cancer organizations to, uh, to, to pass this bill who thought there was, that this was a distraction, that it's not necessary to focus on young women, that it's such a small right, part outliers. of the breast cancer population. And I, I sat there thinking, and my, my, my staff and I were like, so you're just okay with writing off these young women's lives because they're going to die. I mean, you're, you're saying it's okay. Right, let's not, let's not make sure that a population of women that who we could save with this information and spend a little bit of money on that, on making sure that they do. No, let's not, let's not do that. Um, we won the day and I, I had to win, even, even win over the, the American Cancer Society who was initially opposed to it also. I mean, I worked my tail off to, to win them over, and we did, and we did, and we, we made some compromises, but nothing that, that cut the guts out of the bill. Um, but I want to tell you, uh -huh. my own experience when I went to the doctor, I was given lots of choices. It wasn't mm -hmm. like, oh, have a have a biopsy right now. Yeah. I mean, I I had, and and let's and let's just be straight. I, I mean, I have superior access to healthcare as a member of Congress, so. Not everyone mm -hmm. can get in to see their doctor three days after they find their lump. Yeah. Um, you know, I was able to, I had my biopsy on the same day that I went into the doctor um, because that's the kind, you know, I, I had pretty good access. But um, the point is, is that they told me watch and wait was an mm -hmm. option. Um, a fine needle biopsy, a fine needle aspiration was an option. You know, a surgical biopsy mm -hmm. was, was an option. Um, and because they, they, and they also did, uh, uh, an ultrasound and an MRI that day. And, wow. uh, and so they weren't really clear. They thought that there was, there was something there. They weren't sure what it was. Yeah. And watch and wait was an option. If I watched and waited, I had a, I had ductal carcinoma in the other breast once I had mm -hmm. a ductal mastectomy, which I didn't know. Wow. Yeah. So not uncommon. Yeah. 
Yes, I had, right. I had invasive uh, in, the, in the right one and ductal in the left. So my cousin had a similar situation. She was in her 30s, found a lump. They kind of told her, we'll get a six month follow up. She pushed for the biopsy. She ends up having breast cancer and ends up being BRCA. They found it this way. So it's an all too common scenario. Um, yeah, so I always just, we just encourage women to know your body. If it doesn't feel right, you know, tell your doctor. And if they, they keep dismissing you, you could kind of just, you really should get some kind of imaging, like a mammogram and ultrasound depending, or, or ultrasound depending on your age. Yeah, switch doctors. Yeah. <laughs> switch yeah, doctors. Switch doctors. That's right. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really, it's really critical. That's, and and you know, the other thing is that, do you encounter the debate over whether or not self-exam is even necessary? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, you? I know. Speaking of American Cancer Society, the, the American Cancer Society does not recommend that women do monthly self-breast exams. I know. Um, and we wouldn't, and know each, we wouldn't be having this conversation, by the way. I mean, that's, that's a big organization. One would think that it would be appropriate to put their trust in that statement. Um, but as, you know, as breast cancer experts, Robin and I, especially over the last year, have, have really advocated the monthly self-breast exam for the same reason that we kind of touched upon a couple minutes ago. You are your own advocate, and if you feel something different, then that's a red flag that no one else can, you know, pick up on but you. So we're huge fans. We do something called um, Heal It on the First, and it's it's a friendly reminder. We try and keep it fun and light to get women to check their breasts on the first of every month. And we've had a lot of good feedback. So I mean, we're not talking paranoia here. You don't need to be obsessive about it. But yeah, I I, I mean, some women are lumpy. Some right. women, are, you know, some women, you know, are, have dense, dense breasts. I, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, I, for me, it was, it was a lifesaver. I mean, I just know it was, and I don't know when I would have found it. We had this like kind of viral series of tweets that we wrote about said, Dear American Cancer Society, like why that recommendation is confusing. And it said about 40% of breast cancers on, are felt on palpation. Nearly 80% of young women diagnosed with breast cancer find the abnormality themselves. And about 5% of breast cancer is diagnosed in women under age 40. So how else would you find those cancers? If you're not feeling, you're not going to have What I know, I mean, and, the, and the reasons they cite is that they might find something that's benign that warrants a biopsy, and we oh, can't handle. Or it. cause anxiety in in oh, the pretty little I population of fifty percent women. Yeah. <laughs> Unnecessary surgeries. Yeah. You know what? You know how many women I have talked to, including I know myself. <clears throat> I I I would have gone through whatever unnecessary surgeries you needed me to. Yeah. to make sure I knew I had cancer and that I needed to, to correct it. Yeah. And you would be in good company. That's, <laughs> yeah. And like the way we do biopsies now, it's so minimal. It's minimally invasive. We do it through the skin. We could get results. It's been a big, and, big difference in just 15, 15 yeah. years since I had mine. Oh, yeah. So... I know you have to go soon, but one thing I wanted to ask you, I know you're working on a comprehensive bill to improve cancer survivorship care. What does that encompass? And obviously, why is that important to you on some levels? Um, So one of the things that after all these years that I really noticed is that good survivorship care is is very different. Um, And survivorship care and its coverage and making sure that everyone has the same kind of access to it 
um, is, is hit or miss. And so I'm going to introduce legislation that I've been working on with a coalition of organizations uh, focused on survivorship uh, that will create comprehensive access to survivor care services. Um, it'll run the gamut of that continuum, whether it's um, active treatment, you know, from active treatment to post-treatment, um, you know, a recurrence or a secondary diagnosis. Um, but it'll deal with things like planning standards and transition, because um, we have to evaluate the complexity of transition, and there need to be studies. We're not going to just, you know, you don't, you don't just throw a whole bunch of stuff up on the wall. We want to do this scientifically make sure that we assess care plans and the tools that are used to manage survivorship. Um, we need a proper payment model because based on those studies and the reviews, you know, they'll be, what they'll do, what the bill will do is develop a comprehensive method of providing reimbursable services in a cost efficient but affordable manner for survivors. We also need navigation. I mean, I think now the standard of care for when you first come in and you're, and you're diagnosed is, is navigation. And we need navigation on the back end too. Um, you know, again, I have really good access to care, so I, I have good guidance on what I should be doing, when I should be doing it, but not everybody does. And so we have to develop a robust program to help survivors transition from diagnosis through that continuum of care. And then, of course, education and awareness, because that has to be aimed at providing patients and providers with the tools that they need to understand and management, manage survivorship. And that needs research and studies that touch on the different aspects of survivorship and, and make sure that we can make decisions on how to set up that system uh, based on data and save more lives. And the goal is to introduce the bill in June, which is Cancer Survivor Month. Love it. You are actually friends with our favorite cancer survivor, Lainey Jones, who... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lainey Schultz. <laughs> right, Lainey Schultz, that's right. right. Also from South Florida. Yes. She's we actually grew up around the corner from each other, but connected through Instagram because we both had similar platforms. You, know? you do, you yeah. do. You have similar approaches to your Instagram personalities. When I went down to Florida, we did a TikTok together. <laughs> She's so cool. It was really I saw cool. Her, uh, I saw her in the fall. Actually, we were just talking by Instagram and we're going to get together for lunch. She's amazing. Oh, nice. So what else do you do for fun? We saw a lot of softball and cooking pictures on your Instagram. <laughs> Yes. Um, well, those are the main things I do for fun. I, I uh, <laughs> and, and also you know, hang out with my awesome husband and kids. Who I mean, we're empty nesters now, so when they're home. But um, so one of the things I did after I shared my story is that I went to a Republican colleague, woman colleague of mine, Joanne Emerson, and the men in Congress have had this baseball game, congressional baseball game that they've played for you know fifty something years, and it's for charity. And you know there, there was no game that was just there was no there was no athletic contest that was just women members. So we decided to create the Congressional Women's Softball Team, uh, and uh. yes, and we raised money for the Young Survival Coalition because our Capitol Hill community of staff and and you know the government advocates is all the target audience, all young women. So Young Survival Coalition is a great organization that focuses on young women. And so we challenge every year the female press corps, our common adversary, and, uh, and our team is bipartisan. The men's team, the Republicans play against the Democrats. Of course, collegial women who create sisterhood, the Republican and Democratic women play together on the same team, I guess, against the female press corps. And we all raise money together 
for the Young Survival Coalition, and we've raised them over time over two million dollars. Oh my God, incredible! Yeah, yeah. So the, the the next game is September fourteenth, later oh. this year. Actually, we start practice next week. Oh wow. Where we out, we go out and practice at seven in the morning, eighteen times. Oh my God. Before work, this is our, our, our whole team. And then after breast cancer, also related, um, I realized that I needed to change how how I ate. Mm-hmm. I was not the healthiest eater, mm-hmm. and I also could boil water and scramble eggs, and that yeah. was it. So, uh, so I'm not in the habit of letting anything beat me. Mm-hmm. So I decided to teach myself to cook. Oh, nice! So that I could be in control over what I put in my body. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I found on Instagram the clean cooking community, uh-huh. which. You know, clean cooking is the notion that you should really eat as as naturally and uh, the least processed food possible, and uh, and so that's what I do. And now I cook from. I mean, I've been cooking for my family for years now, and we have Sunday night family dinner with all of us together. Uh-huh. And uh, and then I also cook every other chance I get. I think she is frozen. I'm but. so mad she's frozen because she's a clean eater, and this is like her. Oh, and she's no she's, oh, no. she's 90% <laughs> vegan, but oh no. I'm I'm veggie forward. I'm like 80 20. That's what we I I say I'm 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 on your side of the team. I mean, yeah. I, I don't eat great. We've been trying to work on me getting more plant plant forward. I like that word more than plant based. Yeah, yeah, um, it's more real. I'm, I'm veggie, yeah, I'm veggie forward. I'm that I, I I and my family now. Oh my God, you're back. Like, okay, just talking about plant forward. She's she's yes. her cooking habit. You're speaking my love language. Absolutely. By the way, follow me on Clean Cooking Congresswoman. Oh. Because I have an Instagram page that is just food. Yes. Yes. All, 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 to only my food. And I used to be that person who thought, why would anyone take pictures of their food? There's <laughs> a whole inspirational community out there that I found inspiration from, and I got to watch the cool food, look at the cool food they posted, and they, the, the whole Clean Cooking community, yeah, there I am. They, they post recipes and tag each other. And so that, that really inspired me and it kept me focused on it. So, so I created this Instagram account. I'm like, Oh my God, who's going to follow me? And I have like 3,200 followers. You almost have more followers than us. (laughs) (laughs) For a while I had more followers on my cooking Instagram than I did on my state on on my (laughs) Congress. That's really funny. We fixed that problem, but <laughs> oh, I love it. This that I'm so glad we discovered that today. Yeah. So follow me. <laughs> yeah, we definitely will. We are major fangirls, as if we were not already. But thank you so much for your time. We can't thank you enough for being our guest. Thank you both for thank making you. a commitment to, to this. It's just and you you anytime you want to have me back, um, we can. There's so many different facets of this topic we can talk about. We should do I, a cooking I, segment. Clean. We should do a cooking segment. Oh my god, that'd be awesome. I love it. I, I can cook and make things look kind of halfway decent than oh, anybody. I love it. Well, they, Adrian has frozen again, so that is our. Oh, I'm sorry. See, then I'm gonna have to come back so that. I would love to. Good luck with your plantar fasciitis. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Great to be with you guys. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye. Until next time, let's be breasties. If you like what you heard or learned something new, please make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. I've literally always wanted to say that and share with your friends. Make sure you check back every two weeks for more great content. We've got some incredible guests coming up and you won't want to miss them.
and follow the Booby Docs across all social media platforms for more of the breast information.